Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, <clears throat> I had a chat with Jason and Susan this afternoon, and uh, I just want to quickly make sure everything's good. Okay. And, uh, and I explained a little bit to them about some of the things that you do as an actor, which you guys would know about the behind-the-scenes stuff. One of the things you have to do is you have to learn how to do different accents. <clears throat> Lots of different accents. And therefore, Moffat said that he's going to preach with a Russian accent next time he speaks. So. <laughs> <laughs> the old sermon. <laughs> but he did. He did a great job. But, but one of the things I discovered was the foundation of an accent generally is where you place your voice. So everybody do this. Uh, that's your voice, just so you know. <laughs> okay? So you can place your voice uh, in the back of your throat, uh, in your chest, uh, in the middle of your mouth, or who uh, in the front of your mouth, right? And all different accents in the world speak in different parts of their mouths. That's how they pronounce the words. And if you don't put your voice there, it's very hard to pronounce certain words. Like in French, if you say, je besoin de savoir si t'es même, it's always in the front of the mouth. And the way you know it's in the front of the mouth is because you can't put your lips in your teeth and parle français. You, you just cannot speak French. But here's an interesting thing. You can buy a good Afrikaans praat met your lip op your tongue. Okay? You also can do an American accent with your lips and your teeth because all oh, Americans speak in the back of the throat and in Texas right there deep in the chest. But you can't speak South African accent, uh, English with your lips and your teeth because South Africans speak in the front of their mouths and they get really upset with things, you know? <laughs> you know? You see these big burly guys like, no, 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 what are you doing? You know? But that's the thing. It's like sometimes Americans just sound like they speak in a deeper voice, but they're not. It's just... It's all in the back of the throat. So I then figured something out. Why Afrikaans people sound Afrikaans when they are talking English? Because they talk English in the back of a throat. Right? <laughs> and who come Engelse mensen hulle klink sus Engelse van hulle praat Afrikaans? Want hulle doen die voorkant van hulle monde. You can't speak South African English in the back of your throat or... So that's a little tip. It's got nothing to do with my sermon, but enjoy. We should. Uh, do you want to quote the scripture? <laughs> what scripture do you want to quote? Let us not go there. I discerned something. You're a very wise brother. <laughs> I guess that's Russian for thank you. Okay, cool. So, let's close our eyes and pray. Father, I thank you for humor. I thank you that, Lord, we are what you've made us. Lord, you, you, you gave us voices. You gave us accents. You gave us culture. You, all these good things, Lord, you gave to us as beautiful gifts. And I just want to thank you, Lord, for your the diversity that you've created, Lord. The, just the fun, everything from an like a majestic line to a squirrel, Lord, and everything in between. You're just, you're just so creative, Lord. And I, and I pray that tonight we will just tap into your heart, into your creativity and who you are, Lord. Um, and, and that we'll, we'll have a sense of wonder again, Lord. Like We'll be like little children who, who've got a blank page. and like, flip, we know nothing, Lord, teach us. Let our hearts be open to receive from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. I want you to imagine you're 100 meters below the ocean surface and you have an aqualung and you're still good because you can still breathe <clears throat> and then I want you to imagine 
that you become so confident that you just say, I don't need this anymore, and you take it away, but you're still 100 meters down below. How do you feel? A little claustrophobic, a little panicky? The irony is Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And without me, you can do nothing. You have a better chance of winning without an aqualung 100 meters below the sea surface than you do trying to live life without Jesus. You either know that or you don't know it, but eventually you will find it out, no matter which way you slice or dice it. So I want you to remember that. And there's a reason why, because <clears throat> there are three principles I'm going to establish before we get into the talk. And the first principle I want to establish is progress, okay? We all want progress. And that started with Adam and Eve when God spoke to them and said, um, well, first of all, God breathes. It's such a beautiful scripture in Genesis chapter 3 where God uh, creates Adam out of the dust. And then it says he, he breathed into his nostrils. It's so intimate. It's so... It's... it's the most beautiful thing for me, this image of a father that created his son and he blows his breath of life in him and says, you be me. Like you reflect me into the world. I make you in my image. And as you reflect me into the world, the world is a place that's ordered, it's beautiful. And that reflects its glory back to me. And there's this beautiful cycle of involvement with God as he breathes into Adam, okay? And then he says to Adam and Eve when he creates Eve, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Make progress, okay? Then he gives them one simple commandment. Their Bible was, and I'm sure you've heard this line before, but their Bible was literally one line long. It was, don't eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it. That was the whole Bible for them. That's the only thing. The rest is all yours. Go for it. Then the, Satan, in the form of a snake, shows up and uh, says to them, what would what, God say? And she said, he said, I mean, it's amazing if you, if you read the scripture. He says... To her, did, did God say you're not allowed to eat from any of the trees? I'm like, the first thing he's trying to do is create a diversion, create confusion. And Eve goes, uh, no, he said we can eat from everything except this one tree. And he goes, oh, I know why he said it. Because you can make much better progress if you eat from that tree. Because then you'll be like God and you'll get ahead in the game. And he's like, what? Really? I, I'm telling you for sure. So she eats from it, Adam eats from it, God shows up. How do you guys know you're naked? Well, you know, you know, we messed up. And God's like, what, did you eat from the tree? Yeah, well, not really. I mean, she made me do it. You know, people who don't believe in that story, I usually say to them, just look at people. <laughs> we always blame it on the next guy. And she then blames it on the devil. You know, and God curses the devil, and the whole thing falls apart. And if you read Genesis chapter 4 through to Genesis chapter 11, that's basically a story of humanity just coming apart at the seams. They're still making progress. They're still trying to live life and everything, but eventually it's so bad. And eventually it gets to the Tower of Babel where they're trying to build this building or the, you know, that can reach the sky. And, and I don't know if you've ever read Genesis chapter 11, but in there it says we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to make progress because that's our life is going to have meaning. That's our life's going to be awesome. And God's like, okay, let's confuse the languages. You know, so one morning everyone wakes up and the one person walks in and they're like, the Italians freak out. 
And then the Polish sort of don't skibonk the Polish show up and they don't like it. And then you can't have a closet clone, Pala Abadala, Kodanangaba Kons, and Gulukula Kukupilaman. And the Zulus come and like, no one knows what anyone's saying. And then the Afrikaans are like, Lyster is all, Lyster, Lyster, Vatranian, 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 Kumna Nari Pinti. And nobody knows what's going on. And then they all split and go their separate ways. Okay? So the first principle I want to establish is progress. We all want it. And here's what C.S. Lewis said about progress. We all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the person who turns back the soonest is the most progressive. If you're a billionaire and Jesus isn't involved, if the aqualung isn't involved anymore in your life, it doesn't matter. You're just a billion dollars down the wrong road. You see, the thing is, is like if you have piles and piles of so-called progress in your life and Jesus isn't involved, that really is just the evidence of your guilt, the evidence of the wrongness of your road. And again, it's, it's true whether you believe it or not. It doesn't require you to believe it or not. So what is the first principle? The first principle is progress in Christ is true progress. And if you're not on that road, repentance is the key to getting back. And here's a principle that I also must let you know is that um, in the Bible, everything is in three tenses. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you shall be saved. You have repented, you're busy repenting, and you will still be repenting. And the thing about repentance is not just saying you're sorry. Repentance, the word, I'm sure you might have heard this before, repentance means choosing the, the better road. Choosing the road that God is walking down. Choosing the road that the Lord is leading you down. That's repentance. It's not just saying you're sorry. It's changing your life. Okay? So that's the first principle. So maybe progress is not getting what you've always wanted, but maybe it's repentance and receiving what God has always wanted for you. What looks like progress to you could actually be regress. But here's the thing. Wanting progress creates what? It creates expectation. Here's the second principle is expectation. Expectations control how we interpret experience. I'm either happy about this or I'm mad about this. But I had an expectation of how this was supposed to go and it's gone this way or it's gone better than what I thought or it's gone worse. So whatever your expectation that's been set, it'll control how you experience what you go through and that will determine your behavior. (laughs) It's nuts, right? Another C.S. Lewis uh, example. I take you to a door. And I say to you, behind this door, before I open it, behind this door is a maximum security prison. You've seen the movies. You're, oh, my God, oh, horrible. I, can't, I don't want to see that concrete little thing in the corner and where you've got to do your business and all that. And then I open the door and it's a holiday end. And you go, what? Minibar fridge, TV? Man. Expectation created how I experienced it, right? It controlled how I experienced it. And then it controlled my behavior, and I ran in, I dived in the bed. I said, cool, I can be locked up in here. It's fine. Then I take you to another door, and I say to you, behind this door, and this, by the way, does exist. It's called the Palms Hotel in Las Vegas. There's a room that you can rent for one night or however many nights you can afford, but it's $100,000 a night. 1.5 million rand. (laughs) 1.5 million rand a night. The Stan Hotel room. Are you, What? What kind of house can you buy paying 1.5 million a day? You know what I mean? 
Like, I, yeah, you get lost in that house. But anyway, so, I open, so before I open, I say, listen, I know you've saved all your money and this is your honeymoon suite and you, you're just so pumped about it and everything. And then I open the door and it's the same holiday in room. And you're like, what? What's wrong with you? Like, I paid $100,000 for the room. This is unacceptable. I want to see the manager. Once again, your expectation controlled how you experienced it, which then determined your behavior. Okay? So that's the second principle. The first one's all one progress. Second one is expectations control how we interpret experience. Now, the third principle is interpretation. One of the biggest challenges that any one of us who has ever read the Bible or who has ever walked with God has faced is this. It's reading our own expectations into Scripture and into God's purposes for our lives. Okay? What Tim Keller put it this way in his book, The Songs of Jesus, we read into God's promises, which are all true, he, to bless us, to care for us, and to keep us. That is not untrue. That is absolutely true. He promises that. Our own agenda, we read it into it, and then we hold him responsible if he doesn't serve our agenda. Thus, we turn God into our servant instead of turning ourselves into his servants. And God becomes your butler, and he's not your butler. You click your fingers till the cows come home. He's not going to serve that kind of, he's just not your butler. He's other. He has a will and a purpose. He has a goodness. He has a love that we don't even comprehend. And then we want to tell him how to play it because most of the time we are playing from the wounded heart. <laughs> so if things are distorted. And then we try and order around the guy who's actually going to heal us. You know. So those are the three principles I want you to keep in mind is that we all want progress. That's in our hearts. That's in our DNA. There's nothing wrong with wanting progress. It's just how you get it. That's the key. Second thing is we all have expectations and they're kind of life and death expectations most of the time. And the third thing is we all get screwy with our interpretation of things. Okay, so as long as we keep those three things in mind, let's look at the scripture. Okay, the scripture I want to read from tonight, I'll read the full scripture and then we'll, we'll break it down from there. It's Mark chapter 8 verse 27 and we're going to read all the way through to verse 34. Yeah, okay, here we go. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea and Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned, but then, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet to forfeit their soul? That's God's word. Okay. The first thing we're going to look at is Peter's revelation that Jesus is Christ. 
what does that mean in terms of Peter and the other disciples' expectations? So the first thing that you must understand is that when they say you're the Messiah, they're not saying you're like you're the religious leader or anything. When they say you are the Christ, in, in, I think in Matthew, what they're saying is you're the king. So what king are they talking about? Many thousands of years before, God made a promise to King David in Psalm 115, I think it is. Um, <clears throat> sorry, Psalm 89, that one day God would put a king on David's throne that would rule forever. So these guys are looking for that king. That's the, what they mean when they say, you the you that guy that's been in the promises all this time. Let's just quickly look at Psalm 89. And it says this, And I will also appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of kings on the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. Now, when you have a country and God promises you a king where your line will endure forever, you basically make the assumption that your country is going to be the boss boys. That's how it's going to be, right? Then in verse 30 to 34, he even goes as far as to say that even if the nation of Israel fails to follow God, he will keep his covenant um, with them through this king. And then verse 35, once for all, I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever and his throne will endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. Now you've got to remember that since this promise was made, Israel has been in in exile under Babylonian rule. So we have a promise that is so incredible, but we have an experience that is we're under slave labor and another king, and they're not congruent. These two lives are not working, right? How long do you think the Babylonians ruled? (laughs) Okay, from Jesus till now, it's been 2,000 years, right? The Babylonians ruled for two and a half millennia, for 500 years longer than from since Jesus. Okay, and then they were overthrown by the Persian Empire in 539 BC, and currently they find themselves under the Roman oppression when Jesus asked them this question. So you can, can you imagine thousands of years of expectation and promise? They've been faithful to try and walk with God, etc. The expectation is so massive that when these guys go, you're the Christ, we just fishermen, and you picked us? This is the luckiest days of our lives. Like this is going to be the most awesome journey that we're ever going to go on. A little like when you first came to Jesus and you heard the promises and the truth of that, okay? The expectation is that Jesus is going to be like David. He's going to raise up an army and he's going to defeat these Roman oppressors. Do you know that in in those Roman times, if a Roman soldier walked up to you and you were a Jew, he could say to you, hey, carry my stuff. And you have to do it for a mile. That's where the thing comes from when Jesus said, if they ask you to carry them out, do it too. Be gracious and kind. Now, let me tell you something. The nation of Israel resented this. I would resent it. I mean, they're under full oppression. These, they tax them to death. I mean, this is a horrible living. And it's been going on for thousands of years. But that's how they read the Scriptures. They read the Scriptures that Jesus was going to raise up like a David that's going to be like a, a David that took out the Goliath and everything's going to be better. That's the expectation that's in their hearts. Now you've got to ask yourself the question. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, or let me just say this, but first, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone. 
That's always confused me. Like when Jesus sometimes healed people, he would say to them, don't tell anybody. Just go to the priest, get cleansed, get, get like your certificate that you can come back in, that you're not unclean anymore, but just don't tell anybody. And it's so ironic because in our world, we just want to be famous. We want to Instagram the dingus out of everything. Okay? And just want to be And if we're famous, then we've made progress. Then our expectations have been met. Jesus is the complete opposite. He's like, shh, 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 shh. Don't tell anybody who I am. Because who I am is so powerful. And it's going to, and, it, and you live in such a volatile world. If you truly know who I am, you're gonna, actually going to want to kill me. So I've just got to wait until that happens. And it sometimes makes you wonder as Christians, when we truly live God's way, What's going to happen? Because Jesus even said, they might kill you. <laughs> when you touch what God has for you as a human being and what you've got to do in this world for Him, reflect His glory into the world, it's going to get hectic. It's going to get hectic. So, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that He must be killed and after three days... Uh, he will be raised again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, um, commentators said that word rebuke was like intense rebuke. Like, what is wrong with you? What are you thinking? Like, this will never happen. Like, come on, man, come right. Like, did you have a bad day? Like, he was freaking out because Peter's expectation is you can't get killed. You're supposed to be king. And what Peter doesn't know is what he's saying to Jesus. And if that doesn't work for you, then I'm going to lose out and I'm not going to lose out. And then Jesus does what Adam and Eve should have done, but they didn't. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I know what you're trying to do here. And then he says to him, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, your expectations and your interpretation of Scripture is different to mine. It's not the same. Well, what do we think Jesus saw? Because remember, when Jesus was, um, when he was, uh, I just want to get this thing done. Um, when Jesus was uh, 12 years old, his parents lost him. You know, how would you feel like if you lost God? <laughs> You'd also panic, right? <laughs> Where's my son? <laughs> we lost him. <laughs> and they did eventually find him. Where did they find him? He was in the temple, busy reading scripture. Now I think to myself, what it must have been like for Jesus as a 12-year-old and he reads the scripture. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't good looking. He wasn't this macho, you know, Goliath kind of guy that we should find him attractive or that we should be attracted to him naturally, whatever. And, and he's reading this. And then he says, it says, yeah, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet opened not his mouth, like a lamb who was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of many people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of him, or the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall seize offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And then just from verse 12, Therefore I will divide him um, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of the many and make intercession for the transgressors. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Since he was a child and through his life, he's reading the scriptures and he's discovering his calling. Now he's in the maturity of his calling and his revelation of who he is. His expectations are on point. And he's saying to his disciples, I'm going to be killed. But if I'm not killed, you don't get to live. And then Peter, in his warped expectation, comes to him and rebukes him as a friend and says, you don't know what you're doing. Here's the thing that you must always remember. Me, 100%, and you are Peter in this story. Always. We're not Jesus. We have the same arguments with Jesus. Jesus comes into our lives and says, this and this and this has got to die so that this and this and this can live. And we argue with him and go, you don't know what you're talking about. Because I know what the scripture says and I know what the Bible says and I know what the expectation is of my heart. And we argue with him. Because our expectations are warped and also because we want to make progress without him, without the breath of life. Now let's move on to Mark 34 to 36 because Jesus shows us the way of progress. I was going to get back there real quick. And the way of progress is this. From verse 34, and, the, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will, will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? And Jesus is showing you, I mean, he's saying to his disciples, in the light of this whole situation, he's saying to them, guys, this is how it works. You lose your life for my sake, and then you gain your life. Don't come with it, you know how this thing works. Come with the humility, okay? But it gets even crazier, because now, <laughs> the very next chapter, Mark chapter 9, we see the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Um, is the bit I'm going to read. But first in Mark chapter 9, there's the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Peter, John, and James go up with him. They see him in his glorified state. I mean, they're like going off their heads. This is like the real deal. Like there's no doubt about who you are. And yet there's this promise that we've carried in our generational promises for thousands of years that you're the king that's going to fix everything. Okay? But now Jesus, like imagine getting rebuked by Jesus and being called Satan. <laughs> Okay, you would think that would make you think differently, right? But just the next chapter, chapter 9, so I'm assuming it's a couple of days later, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. Again, he's hiding it, okay? For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of the men, into men, and they will kill him, and, then, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Again, they're just like, it doesn't make any sense. But here comes the cool part. 
And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, hey, um, <clears throat> what were you guys discussing on the way? I, heard you, I saw you talking. You're chatting about stuff. But they kept silent for on, on the way, they had argued with one another about who's the greatest. What? And they sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and be the servant of all. He's saying to them, guys, your culture is so warped and wrong. And we need to flip it over. I mean, let's think about it. They saw Jesus. They see the Messiah, everything. And then they argue amongst themselves, who's the greatest? Don't we all do that? Don't we all do what we do so that we can become great so that I can say to another person that I'm greater? Do you know what I'm saying? It's funny, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, pride isn't, um, you, you're not pri- prideful in the thing that you have. You're just, you're just prideful in the thing that you have because you have more of it than somebody else. So that when you meet somebody else who has then more than you, you then become jealous and you need to, it's just this vicious cycle. And if you're trying to make progress like that, <laughs> you missed. Okay, now we're going to move on to the next chapter. Mark chapter 10, I'm, I'm just laying the foundation here and I'll get into some stories. Um, Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 32 to 34, he again tells them that he's going to die. This is now the third time in a row he's told them this exact thing, how he's going to get betrayed, who's going to do it, how, what they're going to do, and he'll ra- rise, again, rise again from the dead on the third day. But what's interesting for me is that um, in Mark, they sometimes in, in theology, they'll talk about a Mark and sandwich. A Mark and sandwich is basically two pieces of bread with a meat in between, okay? And Mark chapter 10 in particular is a good example of a Mark and sandwich because there are four stories in a row and they're all in a row and there's a reason why they're there. The first one is what I prayed earlier when, when, when the disciples wanted to hinder the children from coming to him. Jesus said, no, they must come. Like, unless you like them, unless you have the wonderment of them, unless you come with the assumption that you don't know, that you need to be taught and that you need to be shown the wonders of how this world works. You're not going to inherit anything, okay? Then the next story is quite pointed because the next story is this rich young man that comes to him. Now, we know two things about this rich young man because the Bible tells us. First, that he was rich, financially rich, but also that he was morally rich. Everybody thought he was like the oak in the, in the church that you must model your life on this guy. I wish my son would be like him and I wish my daughter would marry him. So he comes to Jesus and he says, um, Jesus, you are good. And Jesus stops and writes, says, I know your assumption in your heart is I'm good, you good, we both good. And he goes, no, no one's good. God's good, that's it, end of story. And then this young man says, well, what else must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Because I've done a lot. I've done like 90% of the work. What else do I need to add to my computer program to make this thing insane? And Jesus goes, you need a new computer. There's nothing you can add to this thing. But let's test it. Have you done this? Have you honored your mother and your father? Have you, you know, not cheated your neighbor, blah, blah, blah. And he goes through this list of rules and this guy's like, yeah, I've kept them all since I was a kid. Great, well done. Sell all your possessions, give to the poor. And the guy's sad and he walks away and Jesus goes, you know what? That was the first commandment because you can't serve both God and money. Either one or the other is going to be God. And if you break the first commandment, you're bound to break the other nine. Because why would you want to cheat your neighbor? Well, because you worship money. So he looks at this and he exposes him and the disciples freak out. They go, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? Because they realize it's impossible unless Jesus does it, like breathing underwater. And then the next story is James and John. They're like, 
they're amazing too, guys. <laughs> I'm like them in, in the sense that we, we, we are similar in our idiocy because they come to Jesus and they say to him, okay, okay, none of the other guys are here. We figured this out. You are the, you, you the, you the, you the king, you're the Messiah. So do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus goes, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they go, well, we'd love to be on your left and on your right. We'd love to be the COO and the CEO in this new kingdom that you got going. Like we just want to reserve our spots. And Jesus goes, hmm, you don't know what you're asking for. And they go, you, we do. And he goes, really? That's interesting. Can you drink my cup? Can you go through my baptism? And they go, yeah, yeah. And he goes, okay, you will. But for now, what you don't know is, is that the left and the right you've asked for, the two guys are going to hang on the crosses next to me. <laughs> That's what Jerks are asking for. And then the other 10 hear about it, and we know in chapter 9 they were arguing about who's the greatest. Now they're like, flip, they got ahead of us. And they get all upset, and Jesus finds us out, and he's like, guys, come, huddle up, huddle up. Here's the problem. You think, and there it is in the Scripture. Let me read it. He says this. Sorry, I'll just get there. Okay, it's in 40. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. What is the general feel that we have in the world today when somebody's super rich and they own a company and they obviously they don't know Jesus, whatever. Maximize profits, why? So that I have more power to tell people to shut up and do what I want them to do, right? That's what Jesus is saying. You've seen this pattern in the world. That's why people gun it for progress. That's why they want to make a lot of money or be a champion or be a superstar or be whatever they want so that they can tell other people how to, how to be, so they can do whatever they want, right? It says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over themselves and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, they dominate them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever shall be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, he says, even I, the Christ, this King that you guys have had a revelation of, came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Again, he's referring to the expectation of the Scriptures, Isaiah chapter 53, and all the other things that he's read about himself. Okay? So what he's saying to them is, guys, you my disciples, you've been with me for three years. And you have so much world culture in you. And not my culture, not Jesus' culture, not referring to the band, but you don't have my culture in you. You're so far off the mark. I can you don't get it. And here's the final bit of the mark and sandwich. Is he is walking away, and there's this blind guy sitting over there, blind Bartimaeus, and nobody cares about him. Everyone's like, shut up, dude. We're trying to hear what this guy's saying. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's screaming and he's screaming. He won't shut up. And they're like, shut up. You, you don't mean anything. And then Jesus hears him and he says, bring that man to me. And they said to him, hey, brother, it's your good day. It's your, it's your lucky day. He wants to see you. And they, and they bring him to Jesus and it's pretty obvious he's blind. But you know what Jesus says to him? Exactly in the Greek, it's exactly the same as the line that he says to his two disciples. And he says to them this, or he says to him this, what is it you want me to do for you? Because maybe blind Bartimaeus is not having a, a great life because he doesn't have a big house. Maybe he wants food. Maybe he wanted a wife or a companion or something like that. But you know what he says? I want to see. Because he knows he's blind. Had the disciples known they were blind, they would have said the same thing. When Jesus asks you, 
What is it you want me to do for you? Guaranteed, the answer is, help me see. Help me see. Because, you know, we've seen in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, his disciples are blind to what's going on. And Jesus is pointedly, and Mark is pointedly writing this in, in this order so that he can say to you, at the end of that chapter, when I ask you, what is it you want me to do for you? Open my eyes, Lord, that I may see. So that you will know that this rich guy who was morally rich, had all the money in the world, had nothing really because he didn't have Jesus. The disciples that hung with Jesus had the Bible college degrees, the whole nine, the religious, da da da, da the whole everything, but they still couldn't see. They still were blinded to God's call in their life and their expectations were screwy and certainly their interpretation. And here we have a blind guy who knows what it's like to be blind, how that kills your life. He knows it better than the disciples. Blindness is our problem. Jesus didn't say, I've come to make you rich and give you big houses and awesome careers and make you a celebrity. He says, I've come to open blind eyes and set the prisoners free and open deaf ears. Because if you have me, everything else gets thrown in. Come on. If you don't have me, you lose everything else. You just don't know it. Okay. So let's land this sucker. What we do know about Peter is, is that he eventually betrays Jesus. In other you know, books of the Bible, in, in Matthew, and that he makes promises to Jesus that over my dead body, are you going to the cross? They will have to kill me first before they get to you. And I mean, he's, he's just like a bookman. You know? He's like, I got your back, bro. I'm your bodyguard. I'm Peter. I'm the passionate guy. And yet when a young servant girl questions his faith, questions who he is with, he betrays him. And I've read this many times. At the moment Peter betrays him and the rooster crows, it says Jesus was walked past him from a distance. They looked at each other. It's such a deep betrayal. Imagine what it's like when Jesus passionately says, I'm teaching you because I love you. I'm teaching you because I care about you. And Peter just can't hear him. And then it happens. And he looks at him and he says, see, friend, I don't judge you. I still don't judge you. Imagine what Peter felt like, how heart-rending it must have been for him. You know, here's the thing, Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal Prophet, talking about Peter, says this, says, Peter had more faith in his ability to stay faithful to Jesus than he had in Jesus' ability to love him. <laughs> Think about that. Not on our best days can we stay faithful. But on our worst days, he still loves us. Yeah. <laughs> How good is that? Yeah. Oh, and I've stuffed up, trust me. <laughs> I have stuffed up so good. And he still loved me. Because where my dumbness abounded, his grace abounded further. And what's so beautiful is that Jesus comes to Peter and he says to him after his resurrection, he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter goes, you know that I love you. Because you know, for me, what's underlying that question is this. When Jesus says to them in John chapter 15, he says, no greater love is he than he who lays down his life for his friend. He says, Pete, do you love me like that? Are you willing to lose your life for me? And Peter goes, you know I do. And he goes a second and a third time. And eventually the third time it says it cut him to the heart. He was hurt because Jesus was opening that old wound of insecurity that Peter had and he was filling it with his um, 
his love and with his backing. He's like, I've got you back, Peter. I love you. And I'm filling you with that so that you can be confident, not because your ability makes you confident, but because I have got your back and I love you. So on the day of Pentecost, what happens is in Acts chapter 2, we see that they speak all these different languages. So do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Now God's Spirit comes and He pours it out on all flesh. And they speak foreign tongues and everybody understands. Jesus reverses that whole curse. Now every every tribe, every culture, every tongue can be one family in Christ. Maintain your cultural um, identity, but yet become Christ-like. And everyone's invited. Every tribe, every nation, every person is invited. And they go, you guys are drunk. (laughs) And Peter goes, no, we're not drunk. This has been promised for us. And then he quotes the book of Joel. Then he quotes David, the psalm from David. See See what's happened here? Peter now finally gets it. Now he's starting to interpret Scripture correctly. He's starting to understand why Jesus came. It's a beautiful thing. We don't have time now for me to read Acts chapter 2, but but go and read it. And what's incredible is he gets to verse 37 because he says to them, guys, here's the thing. Imagine you in deep, deep trouble. You're in deep trouble, like you owe a billion dollars. There's no ways you can ever pay it back. And your life depends on it. Like if you don't pay it back, they're going to kill you. And then somebody comes along and they want to pay it but you don't understand it and you get all freaked out and you kill that person. And then somebody a few months later comes to you and says, hey, what happened to that guy? And you're like, well, I killed him. (laughs) He's the guy who's going to pay your debt. This is literally what happens to these guys. He says, you know this king that you guys crucified? He was the king that we've been waiting for for 3,000 years and you killed him. He was our hope and you guys killed him. And it says in that scripture that they were cut to the heart because they realized they're one out. The one thing they've been waiting for forever. Not only did they not see it, they killed him. And they're like, what do we do? And Peter says, repent. You're on the wrong road. Let's get back on the right road. He's, he's gracious and kind. He welcomes you back. Last year, Lee and I got back to South Africa. We've been living in America for the last 11 years. And we got back to South Africa. And um, I wanted progress. Quick. And there was this big TV show that was happening. They called me. It eventually messed me around. Eventually, I never even got to audition for this thing. And I was so upset about it. And I was like, how can they diss me? And blah, blah, blah. Ego bruised the whole nine yards. And then just literally a month later, somebody phones me about this big movie that was a beautiful art movie. And I was like, great. All my acting chops are going to be used. And it's wonderful. And that thing also crashed and burned over. And they dragged me along for about six months. And I was so mad at the end of all of this because I was like, man, they screwed up my progress. This was going to fix me and put me back on the map here and get fix my reputation. And in that time, I'm reading the book of Peter and the Lord is really talking to me about my own ego. <laughs> and he's saying to me, you're buying into your own fame, bro. What's up? You know, you're buying into your own progress project. Calm down, son. And so I did calm down and, you know, promoted my book and, you know, spoke in a lot of different places. And then ironically, I think it was in August this year, somebody, my agent phoned me and said, hey, there's this soap shooting just here down the road uh, called St. Oster at the Atlantic Film Studios. And um, they're looking for a character uh, and, you know, you, you could totally do it and they would love to, love to see you for an audition. I'm like, audition? Are you kidding me? I've done over a thousand episodes of this stupid type show. I know how to do this in my sleep. 
And the Lord whispered and said, mm, I said, oh, is that ego, bro? Here's what I suggest. You go and you do the best audition. You prep like you would prep for a movie, like you prep for Superman. You make sure you go in there and you give them the best. Because here's the deal with God. You need to do your absolute best and then leave the outcomes in His hands. That's how you live your life that you give to Him. Because it's hard to understand, right? When, when they say, lose your life for my sake, then you'll, like, how does that work? I'll tell you how it works. You give everything you've possibly got. You study as hard as you can. You work as hard as you can. And then you leave the outcome to God. When I was 18 and I came to Jesus, I was a broken mess. And I was offered him like basically mud. But when I was 40 and I lost my life and my career and everything, it was costly. Would I still follow him? Was I just in it for what he could give me or was I in it for the relationship with him? Okay. So I went and audition, and guess what happened? Oh, you did the best audition by far. I'm like, of course I did, man. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they like loved it. They're like, you're the first guy we saw, and everybody else there was wasting their time. That's literally what the guy said to me. And I said, great, that's good. Let me go. And then as I was going to my first day of work, because I only had like a five-week storyline. I played a terrible guy, but it was a lot of fun. Um, I play a baddie, but... When I was on my way to work, I felt the Lord speak to him and say to me, you know, 20 years ago when you were in Seamdalon, when you, when you got that job because I simply opened a door for you, remember? Remember that one? Um, and, it, and it got you on tons of magazine covers and gave you a whole career and you could buy a house and the second one and the cars and the whole nine. Remember, remember all that? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you know that everyone knew you were a Christian, right? Because you kept the rules so well. You were the one that didn't get drunk at the parties and didn't sleep around and, and you're the one that didn't swear on set when you got your words wrong and all that. Everybody knew you were Christian because you kept the rules. But did they know you were Christian because you loved well? Did they know you were Christian because you weren't as arrogant and ambitious as your mates? Because like a little bird's whispering in my ear that you possibly were more arrogant and ambitious and, and, and gunning for progress in your life without me than they were. So here's what's happening is I'm giving you a second chance. I'm giving you another go round because you were very disparaging about soap operas and saying it's such a low form of art and you're this great movie actor guy. You're nothing but a humble servant, my friend. And wherever you go, you need to love well. So why don't you go along and you love those people as well as you possibly can. You be kind to them. Let them know you're a Christian by your love because didn't Jesus say that? They shall know you by how you love one another. I can't remember him ever saying they shall know that you're a Christian because you kept the rules so well and you judged everyone else around you. Can't remember that bit. And you know what the, the upshot of the thing was? In my heart, I felt the Lord saying, yep, now we're making progress. <laughs> now we're making progress. Do you know how, how easy it is to give a human being a billion dollars or $10 billion or a trillion dollars and how difficult it is to get a human being to love his neighbor as himself? It's like worlds apart. It's worlds apart. I mean, what I'm telling you now is years and years of journeying with the Lord and going through all kinds of storms and back and forth and trying to figure this thing out. And none of what I told you now I knew in the future. I've only known this looking backwards. That's what you were doing. Ah, oh, now I get it. And I, I mean, I'm standing up here t t telling you this story and this is, this is what I'm going to end with is because He loves you. It's because He loves you. It's because He cares about you. He cares about what you're doing with your life. 
He cares about what brings you joy. He cares about so much about you. He's so intentional about you. He's even willing to offend you. And by the way, if you have a God that can't offend you, you probably don't have the God I believe in. And do you know why we read the Bible? A lot of theologians will say this to you. Do you know why we read the Bible, the Old and the New Testament? It's because if we don't, we'll make up a God that doesn't really exist. I hear a lot of people in my industry, they love Jesus. And then we start having a conversation. I go, well, I don't know that Jesus. Do you read the, no, I don't. Okay, not part of the church? Okay. Okay, now I know why. Now I know why you worship a figment of your imagination and why he can either disappoint you, why he's your servant. He's, he's, your, he's your genie that his tummy you rub and then he must snap and, and do stuff. God is a father who's intentional about you and about your life and about you, know, you being his child and, and learning how to be like he is. You know? Anyway, the upshot of the thing was, I, I, here's the best part. I had the best time. You can ask Lee, when I was in Sevenland, I was probably miserable for four years. Or maybe I was happy for the first six months. And the reason why I was miserable was because I wasn't making enough progress quick enough. They weren't paying me enough, and I wasn't da-da-da-da, and I wanted movies and all this sort of thing. Here I was, 20 years later, and I was having the time of my life, just joy and peace happening. And I realized, oh, it's because I'm less of a schmuck. Hmm. That's handy. <laughs> That's handy. That's handy. I hope you were blessed by this teaching this evening.